Now, last year, a mother and her daughter uh, made headlines in Belgium after making a cardboard car, right? Why did they make this cardboard car? Well, they made it because they wanted to go through their local McDonald's drive through uh, As you know, Belgium, like many countries in Europe, were under COVID lockdown. People could not buy McDonald's except if they are to drive through. So it's McDonald's had been restricted only to those who owned cars, right? And Natalie and her daughter don't have a car, right? But they are devoted to McDonald's. No lockdown is going to keep them away, right? So they decided to build a cardboard car and they decided to queue up alongside real cars at their local McDonald's drive-through. And the police uh, allowed them, actually. Uh, they couldn't argue with their devotion to McDonald's. The passion of Natalie and her daughter for McDee's is strange, isn't it? But all of us have things that we are devoted to. There are things that are more passionate to us uh, than other things. It may be your family. It may be your husband. Uh, your husband would like to hear that. You are devoted to him, perhaps. Uh, it may be your career. It may be a hobby. Uh, you know, you think about football fans and their devotion to those football clubs. Or it may be a politician like Boris Johnson. I don't know. People have strange devotion. Maybe Bojo is your thing and you're just devoted to him. I wonder, if we ask people that, that know you very well, if, we, if I came and asked people that know you very well, what would they say is your deepest devotion in your life? If you're married, if I spoke to your wife and said, just tell me, what is his deepest devotion? What would your wife say? If I asked your daughter, what, what, what is my brother's deepest devotion? What would she say? What is that thing you think that, you know, that people would say you are living for? What would they say gets you up in the morning? Well, if you're a follower of Jesus, I hope they would say the thing that gets you up in the morning is your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that's the answer they would give. They would say, Jesus is your greatest passion in life. But when you think about that, if you are like me, you are concerned, you, you are a bit fearful that that's not the answer they would really give. They wouldn't really say Jesus is your greatest passion. For many of us, Jesus is one of our devotions, one of our passions, but is not the greatest passion. No matter how long we have been true Christians, all of us come up very short in this area. Our devotion to Jesus is not what it should be. It should, it should be the greatest devotion in our life. But if we are being honest, for many of us, that's not the case. We come up very short in this area. The Lord Jesus is our God. He is holy, unchanging, everlasting, self-existent. Self-sufficient is infinite in glory, infinite in power, infinite in love, infinite in wisdom, infinite in goodness. And out of the depth of his love, he has reached out, hasn't he? In our, he has reached out to us in our sin. He has loved us while we were drowning in the vomit of our sin and rebellion against him. Christ died for us whilst we were still sinners. On that cross, Christ bore for himself, we, we were reminded last week, our punishment. 
Christ became a curse for us. He not only died for our sins, it has pleased the Lord Jesus Christ. It has pleased God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit to send the Holy Spirit to breathe new life, to regenerate, to bring us to true faith in Jesus. He has made us born again if we're truly trusting in Him. And we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is coming soon. Our prayer is Maranatha, come now, Lord Jesus. He is coming to bring us into the new heavens and new earth. Christ Jesus is our great God. Our husband, our shepherd, our prophet, priest, and king. Our loving and never failing friend. Our joy without end. And yet when we look at our lives, we can profess those great theological truths. But when we look at our lives, we realize we are not as devoted to the Lord Jesus as we should be. We confess with the hymn writer, don't we? Weak is the effort of my heart and cold my warmest thoughts. And is our God loving? Because our God knows that. He knows we are not as devoted to him as we should be. And I think this is one of the reasons Psalm 132 is in our Bibles. It is here to encourage us to grow in devotion to God. We've been going through the Psalms of Ascent. You remember that the songs of Ascent are those songs that the Jewish pilgrims in the Old Testament sang on their way to worship God in Jerusalem. And Psalm 132 fits in that. These songs of ascent are not songs of self-encouragement. You wouldn't find them in waterstones under that self-help section. No, these songs are, are songs that encourage us not to depend on us, but to be devoted to Him, to depend on Him alone, on God alone. And in this psalm, God is reminding us two important things about our devotion to him. Two important truths um, that I think are very important, particularly on our church anniversary to be reminded of. The first, and this is why we're taking the whole psalm, actually. The first thing, the first, there are just two truths I just want to share here. The first truth is that we are meant to be devoted to God. All people of God are meant to be devoted to God. Look at this psalm. There are two groups. This is, a, this is one of the most complex psalms in the whole Bible. It is complicated. Okay? So I'm just going to try and make it simple for us to get it. There are two groups of people in this psalm. Some people might say three groups, but I'll, I'll stick to two. There are two groups of people in this psalm that are devoted to God. Okay? The first group are the people who wrote and sang this psalm for the first time. We hear their voices in verse 1, at the beginning of the psalm. Look at that. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. Okay? When we glance over to verse 10, we see that the second king of Israel, David, is no longer around. And the new king is now in charge. And in verse 10, the people are asking the Lord to bless this new anointed as king. Look at verse 10, this new anointed king. For the sake of your servant, David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one or the new king who has been anointed by God. Now, who is this new king in verse 10? It's most likely the anointed one is David's son, Solomon. Why do I say that? Well, because King Solomon spoke the words of verse 8 to verse 10. He spoke these words when he was dedicating the new temple he built for the Lord in Jerusalem. You can read about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 6, 
verse 12 to 41. Towards the end of 2 Chronicles chapter 6, you find those exact words, perhaps from verse 39 to verse 41. You can check that for yourself. So he said these words, Solomon, when he was dedicating the temple. Now, the key part of the dedication ceremony of the temple was bringing in the Ark of the Covenant to bring it into the temple. The Ark, young ones, don't confuse the Ark here with Noah's Ark. You couldn't bring that Noah's Ark into the temple, right? The Ark here is the Ark of the Covenant. It was a large God-covered box. Now, at this time, the ark only contained the Ten Commandments. Before that, it had Aaron's staff and had the manna as well. But at the time it was being brought, from his wanderings, it had been wondering about, from his wandering, when it was being brought into the temple at the time of Solomon, it only contained the Ten Commandments, which the Lord God gave Israel on Mount Sinai as part of, of, this, of his covenant of binding agreement with them. Now, this is important. The top cover of the ark is called the mercy seat, right? And it had two golden cherubs or angels uh, with outstretched wings at opposite ends of this mercy seat. They were facing each other. The mercy seat itself was used once a year by the high priest on the Day of Atonement. Uh, it was a place where the sins of Israel were actually atoned for. The mercy seat, therefore, was a symbolic throne of God among his people. It was at the mercy seat that God chose to appear to Israel in his Shekinah glory, in his blinding light glory. So when we think of the ark that Solomon is bringing into the temple, it is a symbol of God's presence, isn't it, and his power. It reminded Israel that God is the king of Israel. He is Yahweh who is enthroned above the cherubim. Now, before Solomon built the temple, the ark was kept inside the tabernacle. And the tabernacle uh, is a temporary tent used by Israel for meeting with God. Right? But in verse 7 to 10, here we are reading, the ark is being moved into the temple... And Solomon and Israel are asking God to live among them and make them devoted to him. Look at verse 8 to verse 9, just briefly there. Look at the prayer that Solomon and the people made. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. Now... The words we're reading in verse 8 to 9 were first actually coined by Moses. That's important. You remember, you may remember from Numbers 10, verse 35 to verse 36, when they were in the wilderness, Moses used those words. Let me just read them for you. Numbers 10, verse 35 to 36. Moses said this, And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. And when it rested... He said, return, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. Now, when, God, when Moses called on God to rise, it's not because God was sitting down, right? He was calling on God to show his power and presence among them. And in the same way, here back in, 100, in Psalm 132, 
Israel with King Solomon, they're asking God to be powerfully present with them, especially to strengthen their leaders, in this case, strengthen Solomon, to, so Solomon could encourage them and strengthen them to look to God. Look at verse 10 there. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed. They are saying, look, Lord, be with King Solomon so that he can lead us to be devoted to you. Please help him as you helped his father David to lead us. And that brings us to the second group. Or rather, the second person mentioned, who was devoted to God, mentioned here. It is King David, isn't it? The father of Solomon. When we look at this psalm, what makes it more complicated about this psalm is that actually the psalm, it may be about Solomon and the people, but it is also about David. Because when we look at verse 1 to verse 5, look at that. We are told of David's devotion to God. Let's read that. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. We stop there. We see that the people are saying to God, please remember how King David worked so hard flat out to ensure that the temple was built in Jerusalem to worship him. We know he's talking about the temple because the phrase, their dwelling place, means a permanent home or a temple for the ark, not the temporary tent or tabernacle where the ark had been at the time. We're told here that David worked out to ensure Israel had a temple for God an enduring, visible symbol of the presence of God so that Israel can remain devoted to God. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that in the end, David didn't build the temple because God appointed David's son, Solomon, to do the actual work of building the temple. But in verse 1 to 5, we are being reminded that David was so devoted to God, he gave it everything he had. He put his heart and soul to ensure that when Solomon comes, when Solomon starts building, everything was there ready for him, ready to go. He moved heaven and earth to make everything ready for Solomon, just to get on with it and do the, the remaining bits. And one of the things that David did is to bring the ark from Kiriath-Jerim, or called Jer, to Jerusalem, so that it can be placed in the temple when it was built. Because you know the temple had been wandering, had been at one point captured by the Philistines, right? And then they had returned it, right? But it was still not where it should be. So David searched for the ark, brought it back to, uh, brought it back to Jerusalem from the fields of Jer or Kiriath Jerim. And he placed it in the temple, he placed it there in Jerusalem in readiness for the temple to be built. And so verse 6 to 7 tells us, Behold, we heard of it in Ephrata, as in rumors of the ark were, were, were everywhere, including in David's land of Ephrata. We found it, it was eventually found in the fields of Jer. And then David ensured it was brought back. And verse 7 says, Let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship. At his footstool. This verse is simply saying David's hard work and sacrifice for God paid off. 
the temple was built by his son Solomon. And the ark was placed in the temple as a symbol of God's presence among them. That's a lot of detail I know to take in, right? But here's the thing. What's going on in verse 1 to 10 is that the people are saying to God, our ancestor David worked hard for us to have a new temple so that we can worship and serve you faithfully. And now, oh Lord, we are praying for you to, to fulfill the desires of King David. And they are crying out to God. They are saying, come among us, oh Lord. Rule us. Help us to be devoted to you. They are saying, look, we don't just want to be your people on paper. We don't just want to be Christians as it were, in name only. We want you to be our greatest passion. To live for you. That's why verse 8 to 9 is getting at. Arise, O oh Lord. Go to your resting place. You and the ark of your mind. And then verse 9 continues, doesn't it? Let your priests, those who serve you, be clothed with righteousness. And your saints, the people of Israel, with joy. With shouts of, your, with shouts of joy. Verse 1 to 10 is teaching us that all people of God are meant to be devoted to God. We are meant to have a deep longing to know and experience God. Not just privately. The focus of this psalm is that we are meant to have a deep longing for God to be experienced among us. That's the force of this psalm. If you are thinking about this psalm, you know, when you come to scripture, you should ask yourself, what does this scripture uniquely add to what we are taught elsewhere? What this scripture uniquely adds is this. It is saying the mark of true devotion is being devoted to the people of God. The mark of true devotion to God is being devoted to the people of God as David was. David was a church builder, we might say. The mark of true devotion to God is to have his desire to see God truly worshipped and honored by his people. And it should be a burden and a passion, not just for people in leadership, for each follower of Jesus. It is saying to us, when we are truly passionate about God, we are passionate about his people. We are like David. We do not spare any effort to build up his local church. And this truth is comforting, isn't it? I think it should comfort us as a fellowship. Because as we look back over the last year, it has been a difficult and challenging time over this COVID period. I've found the last 12 months to be the hardest time for me personally in terms of leading the fellowship here. And I know some of you have been stretched in many areas. Discipling and caring for others. Teaching Sunday school. Supporting the men and ladies' work. You have had to rearrange your diaries to ensure the flyers are distributed. You have come out to share the gospel on the Broadway, risking COVID. Some of you have labored quietly to keep the church cleaned. In and out, keep it COVID secure. You have sacrificed your precious time, some of you, to clean the surroundings during the lockdown even sometimes. When not many people are, are really walking about, you've done that. 
And you've done all of these things on top of your existing obligations, on top of the mental stress that the lockdown has brought on many people. A time when, frankly, many of us feel mentally exhausted. As I was telling one of the brothers, I take, I'm taking one Sunday at a time. And I know a number of you have been going through that. You have endured hardship for his church. On top of the other stresses of your everyday life, loved ones and well, those that have gone to glory, caring for the elderly and so forth, you have endured hardship for his church. Some of you have had difficult moments in your life when you have felt not being in church, but you've come out for the Lord and for his church, remembering the powerful sermon that Pastor Bernard Roberts preached here, that we bring something when we're here, even if we feel we're not. You've come out still. And some of you, of course, have financially supported the work of the church with very little money to spare in your pockets. In very difficult economic conditions, you have still sacrificed for the work to be built up here and to support our GBM missionaries and others. You could have chosen to to give up that, the, the work of God, but no, you chose to give up your comforts. Like David, you have been enduring hardship so that the church of God, the work of God can continue. Beloved, is that you? This one is for you. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured. And the Bible is comforting us, isn't it? It's saying every sacrifice we make for his church to grow and be strengthened is never forgotten by God. Oh, what a wonderful thing that the Lord saw it fit to record David's hard work in the scripture so that we can be comforted that none of our work, even if it looks hopeless, is ever lost. Oh, Lord. I've had to pray this for a number of people I know. Oh, Lord, remember so and so all the hardship he endured for the gospel. Remember, our dear sister, all the hard work she endured being on dialysis and still coming out to church in difficult times. Remember her in your favor. Because that encourages us, doesn't it? It encourages us. And in the next 12 months, when we feel like giving up in serving the Lord, when we start thinking, let others in the church do it instead of me, let us resist the temptation. Because this passage is reminding us that if we truly belong to God, we are meant to be devoted to the Lord. All those who are truly passionate about the Lord have a burning desire to see the people of God, His church in Christ, to grow and be strengthened. So keep giving yourself to the work of God. And beloved, do not do it reluctantly or with complaints in your heart. Let us not do it like we're being forced to do it. We see none of that in David. 
I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Doesn't sound like a man complaining. He gave himself willingly to the work. David gave all his energy, all his time, all his resources to build up the people of God. And if you're a true follower of Jesus, you've been placed in this church for a reason. And God wants you to be devoted to the life of his people in this local assembly. And he has given each one of us your true trust in Jesus. All the time, all the presence, right? You, just you being you, right? All the spiritual gifts and all the resources to support and build his church like King David. So this morning, let us resolve to give ourselves to building the work for the next 12 months. And you and I have every reason, don't we, to do this because of the second and final point I just want to make here. The second truth we learn here is that we are meant to be devoted to God because God is devoted to us in Christ. That's the reason. Point number one, we are to be devoted to God. Why? Because God is devoted to us in Christ. The people who wrote this psalm and the Jewish pilgrim who later sang it were devoted to God because they believed God was devoted to them. And we see that after we see that after they poured out their longing for God's presence in verse 8 to 10, they immediately declare God's prior commitment to them. Look at verse 11 to 12. The Lord swore to David a sure hoth from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. These words are actually a direct quote of what God taught King David in 2 Samuel 7. We don't have time to do that, but you can study that this afternoon. 2 Samuel 7, when God made a covenant or a binding agreement with David to bless him. That's when those words were used by God. David wanted to build a permanent temple for God. You remember that. But God told him, no. God loved Israel and wanted to build a dynasty for David. So David is like, I'm going to build you a temple. I'm going to build you a house. There's an interesting wordplay about this. I'm going to build you a house. And God is like, no, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you. I'm going to give you a dynasty. He says, I love Israel and I want to be among them and bless them. It was those I love you type moments, isn't it? I love you. No, I love you more. It was that kind of thing. God was saying, I love you, David. I'm going to bless you. And God was so devoted to Israel, he said he would ensure that Israel always had a king from David's line who would protect them and lead them to God all the time. Now, why did God make this promise to David? Well, it's not so much because of David's devotion to God. It was simply God's independent choice. That's what verse 13 to 14 is getting at. Look at that. What's the reason? Well, the word for is telling us the reason for 11 to 12 in verse 13. For, or because, the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. God is saying, look, I have chosen to be among you because I love you. I am doing this with no strings attached. 
My love for you is a sovereign choice. And because I love you, I am going to care for all your needs. I will save you and bless you with everlasting abundance and satisfaction. Look at verse 15 to verse 16. That's what he says. I will abundantly bless our provision. I will satisfy our poor with bread. Think of Mary's magnificent there. Verse 16. A priest I will clothe with salvation and a sense we shout for joy. Do you notice something here? Do you see what's in verse 8 to 9? And what you read in verse 14 to verse 15 to verse 16? Do you see how the two compare? Right? The key point is this. All the things that the people of God were praying for in verse 8 to 10, God had already promised them to David, to them, through King David. And this is the point of verse 11 to 16. It is that we are meant to love God because God first loved us. That's what First John says, isn't it? We are meant to be, de- we had this at the wedding yesterday, isn't it? We are meant to be devoted to God because God is first devoted to us. His loving devotion to us enables our loving devotion to him. But don't think of it simply as motivation. It's not simply that the loving devotion of God motivates us. It is that God himself powerfully enables us to be devoted to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. Because when we look at verse 11 to 16, look at that. When you scan through that, it does not take long to see that there is a big problem here. Do you see the problem in these verses, verse 11 to 16? Notice that verse 13 to 14, God promises that he's going to be among his people forever. Did you see that? For the Lord has chosen Zion, he has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. I will dwell for I have desired. But when we look back in verse 12, do you see what verse 12 says? There seems to be a condition there. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on their throne. God is saying, look, I'm going to be among you, right? But you can only enjoy my presence if you remain obedient to me. That's a problem. That's a big problem. So we ask us, what's going on here? Well, what God is saying to Israel is this. Even though I love you, I can only be with you as long as you want me around. God is saying, look, I want to live with you, but I can't live with you if you are not on the same page with me. I won't sacrifice who I am for you. And we need to hear that in these times. God is not going to change for any of us, beloved. I won't sacrifice who I am just to be with you. It's not that my love for you has a limit. It is that my love for you demands I hate your complacency. It demands I hate your demeaning of me. It demands that I hate your rebellion of me. I cannot love you and love your sin, God says. I cannot love you and be comfortable with you constantly stabbing me in my holy chest. My love is a holy love. If I remain with you, Israel, you'll be consumed by my wrath. Because my holiness demands holiness. So to be with God, because to be with God, we must be holy as God is. And that's a big problem. Because if you know the story of Israel, 
If you know your own story, you know that Israel, like all of us, are addicted to sin. So God is making all these wonderful promises for them, but this condition alone obliterates all the promises. This condition of holiness makes everything impossible. And so how is God going to square around this circle? That's the amazing thing about this passage. The amazing thing is verse 17 to verse 18. God promises to raise up a king who will be devoted to the people and devoted to God. Look at that. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp. I have done the hard work. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. God is saying, look, I'm going to give you a new king from the line of David. He will guarantee my devotion to you and your devotion to me. This person is described in three wonderful images that communicate his kingship. He's going to be a horn. The horn is a symbol of great power and kingship. We read about it in Psalm 89, verse 20 to 29. This king will also be a lamp. That is to say, he will be the one through whom God guides his people. He will be a light shining in the darkness of the world. And above all, this person will be a king with a shining crown, as it were. He will be a a king who defeats all the enemies of God's people. He says there, his enemies are clothed with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Who is God talking about? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. And we know that because of the passage we read in Luke 1, verse 68 to 75, the Zechariah's prophecy. That God has raised up a horn for his people. The Lord Jesus is David's greatest son, isn't he? He's greater than David because the Lord Jesus is fully God. He is God coming to reign over his people. He is David's son because, you see, Jesus was born as fully man and traced his ancestry to David, both through Mary and through Joseph, his adopted dad. As fully man, the Lord Jesus is the perfect Israelite king, who fulfilled all the requirements of the old covenant. He lived a sinless life and a devoted life to God. He knew no sin. And, and Peter reminds us, doesn't he, that Jesus knew no sin. Why? So that he could go to that cross and die in our place. So that he could be a curse for us. He died on that cross for us. To give us a new life with God. And because Jesus has lived, and this is wonderful, isn't it? Because Jesus has lived a perfect devoted life to God. How God treats all who trust in Jesus as perfectly devoted to Him. When you become born again, God gives you, reckons on you the perfect devoted record of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is God devoted to us and for us. And more than that, this is simply imputation of his holy life on us, as it were. It is the fact that the Holy Spirit comes in us, gives us a new heart now, you see, that, that us, by his spirit, that is able now to be truly grow in devotion to God by his spirit. Beloved, 
the good news of this passage, you should all be standing up by now in excitement. The good news of this passage is this, right? Is that God is not commanding devotion to him so that he can be devoted to you. No, God enables our devotion to him through Jesus. The reason God commands your devotion is that he's commanding you because that is who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit enables you to become outside who you already are inside. That's, that's sanctification. Growing as a Christian. It is becoming who you already are. That's the paradox. And the truth of this passage is that God is devoted to us in Christ. And so the question... As I come to the end, is how should we respond to this amazing truth? This truth that God is devoted to us in Christ. Well, beloved, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, your only response surely is thankfulness and worship to God for his devotion to us. Oh, beloved, be thankful that God has freely chosen you to make you part of his people in Christ. To make you one in whom the Holy Spirit dwells. Oh, if, if that's not going to excite you, nothing will. Thank God that this morning, God is present among us. We are meeting this morning as a new temple of the living God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, be thankful to God for that. Because it's... Like I said of Sister Solange's, at Sister Solange's baptism, being born again is a miracle. Well, here's another miracle, isn't it? The miracle of God's indwelling presence among his people. It's a miracle because it shouldn't happen. You and I are vow sinners by nature before God. We do not deserve God. God living in us should obliterate us because of his holiness. He's too holy for, for us. But he doesn't obliterate us. Because we are in the presence of God by the precious sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. His blood has cleansed us of all our sins before God. Past, present, and future. And be thankful that you are now living with God in Christ. Because you are doing that, you, you have all your needs met in him. God has given you lasting fulfillment in Christ. Yes, in this world, we will still experience pain and suffering. Because this world is cursed. It is fallen. But beloved, we are no longer facing life alone. The world is. The world is. The world has no hope. It's fa- they are facing life on their own. If we are in Christ, we are facing it in the presence of God. We are living in the, the, the most powerful Presence in the entire universe. And the Lord is caring for you. And is devoted to you. He is with you. Don't let this stuff bore you, beloved. Thank him for that. Worship him. Because the day is coming when we will live without pain and suffering. We will live with our Lord Jesus Christ in the new heaven, the new earth. Let us be thankful that God has raised up in the Lord Jesus Christ a powerful, protective horn of salvation. No matter what life brings. 
Though we walk in the shadow of death and other enemies, we have no reason to fear because Christ is our lamp. Is our light shining in darkness. Is guiding us through the valley of this present darkness. Yes, the world is getting darker, but Jesus is our lamp. Once we were lost without opening the world like the rest of mankind, but our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Righteousness, has shined brightly for us against our enemies. Death defeated. Sin defeated. Satan defeated. Hell defeated. That's a Christian's record in Christ. There's now nothing that can keep us from the love of God. Nothing that can separate us from him. We are safe and secure in him. So, worship. Worship him. Delightfully bow down before him. And the other thing we need to do, of course, is that we must pray, isn't it? Because God is so wonderfully devoted to us in Christ, let us pray to him to make us devoted to him as he is devoted to us. The Jewish pilgrims who sang this song after their exile used it as a prayer to God for revival. That's what the Psalms of a center. They are revival prayers. They looked at their lives and they longed for God. And they came before God and they cried out in this psalm, Arise among us, O Lord. Rule us with your power. We need you as David needed you. And so let us cry out to God to strengthen our devotion to him in the next 12 months and help us to do his work where he's placed us. Yes, the work is hard. It's often discouraging. But in Christ, we have a, we have a horn. We have a lamp. And the crown of righteousness awaits us. So may the Lord help all of us who are trusting in Christ to be devoted to him because he is already devoted to us. Amen.